The following is the presentation of Renfrew Baptist Church, a community of faith that exists to create obedient followers of Jesus Christ who love God and love people. Well, this morning, uh, if you have a Bible with you, and I hope that you do, I'd invite you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. If you don't have one with you, hopefully there's one in the seat back somewhere in front of you. Uh, you're welcome, of course, to use that. If you need a Bible, uh, you're welcome to take one of those as our gift to you. Um, so let's turn to 1 John uh, chapter 2. And this morning we are reading verses 18 through 28. And we'll read the whole text and then we'll, we will dive in. So 1 John 2, 18 through 28. The Apostle John, Pastor John, writes these words to the church. He says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they, if they had been of us, they would, not, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies Jesus the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Father has the Son, Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will be able to abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him who abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you that, that we get to be here with you, that we get to sit under the teaching of your word. Spirit, come lead us, and teach us, and reveal the Father to us, convict us, confront us with our own rebellion, and comfort us with your gospel. Amen. So this is a, another passage that needs some, some digging. So let's dig in here. We'll start at the beginning, and as we need to stop and pause, we'll stop and pause. So beginning in verse 18, let's start. Children. Okay, we're going to stop there for a second. We talked a little bit last time, that's a couple weeks ago now, about this term of children, and you know we're here in John, uh, and I want to pause and kind of chat about it again. Now once again, as we, of course, when we come to Scripture... We come primarily to answer four and, and sometimes even get five gospel questions. And so you'll remember, you may remember, here they are. We want to answer the questions of who is God, what does he do, who are we, and what do we do? And the bonus question is, how do we do it? So those are questions, you've heard me say them before, you're going to get sick of me saying them, and by the end, maybe even next week, I'll say, we come with questions and I'll just let it be open and you guys can repeat the questions to me. Who is God? What does he do? Who are we? What do we do? And sometimes even we see how do we do it. So we, be, we come to our passage and we even come to this word children with those questions in mind. And once again we see John addressing his readers as children or loved ones. And this is something that John does almost 20 times over the course of his three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which are, 2nd and 3rd John are only a chapter each, so it's only seven chapters, but 20 times almost we have him addressing the church, that's you and me as well, 
as children or loved ones. Now, question, what do we do when we find a word or phrase that is repeated a lot? This is, this is your part to answer. What do we do when we find something that's repeated a lot? What should that speak in our minds? It's important. We need to pay attention because the writer is saying something that he wants us to get. So here again, as John repeatedly refers to those he's writing to as children's or little children, children's or little children or loved ones, etc., he's reminding them of first who they are in his eyes, and he's also speaking truth into their identity. Something we'll also see next week in chapter 3 is that he begins to use this term of children, describing the church as God's children, speaking again into our identity. Something we need to remember as well, especially as we get into next week, but when, when you are a child of something, when you are a loved one, when you are a little child, any of these words that John's using here, it's referring to someone who has become an heir. A child, if you're a child of a father, you have, there are some entitlements that come along with that. You're entitled as a child to an inheritance. And so as God's children, we are co-heirs with Jesus, which is incredible. And all that he has, that he is entitled to, as God's son is given to us too as children and that is a big big deal and we'll come back to that more again next week but this children speaks to our identity as loved ones let's keep reading verse 18 again children it is the last hour now we better stop there again too I promise it will begin to go quicker but this is setting us up here now, last hour, what does that mean? It seems that John's here is trying to drum up some sort of urgency for something that, well, it's a long time since John wrote these words. I mean, it's, it's 2,000 years later. How long is this hour? But John's saying it's, it's the last hour, so pay attention. So whenever we begin to talk about the last things or the last hour, we get into a bit of a discussion about the end of time. And if we are to develop a proper eschatology, which means uh, the part of theology, which is the study of God, but our eschatology is concerned with the, the death, judgment, and final destiny of the soul and of humankind. It's, it's what happens at the end, the eschatology. If we are to develop a proper eschatology, we need to work to understand what this last hour means. If it's the last hour, that means the end must be coming, right? So the short version this morning is this. The last hour that John is talking about here is the time between the first and second comings of Jesus. And this is a consistent teaching throughout the Old Testament. We can look at Acts chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, which goes back and quotes the prophet Joel. We can look at 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. We can look at 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. We can go into Hebrews, the beginning of Hebrews, chapter 1. We can go deeper in Hebrews and look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. We can look at 1 Peter chapter 1. All talking about the last hour. You see, the people of the nation of Christ have been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for the Redeemer to come, for the Anointed One to come, and that was Jesus. And Jesus said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is here. He started the last hour by his first coming. And we are instructed both by Jesus and the apostles that, that the time is short. Jesus' return is imminent. Jesus talked about, talked about him coming back as a thief in the night. We don't know when, but we know it's going to happen. So when we read here the last hour, it's crucial that we, we don't look at this and say, well, John was expecting this to happen like in an hour or two. And I, I think several who bring up contradictions or so-called contradictions in the Bible point to this. Well, Jesus seemed to say that something was going to happen really quick and it's 2,000 years later and it hasn't happened, so let's throw out the whole Bible. But that's not what we see the apostles thinking here. 
yes, it brings a, a, a connotation, a meaning of something's coming, but it doesn't mean it's going to be this moment. So as we read anywhere in our New Testament, the last hour is coming, Jesus is returning, it should drum up in us a sense of urgency, and we should live with expectation that it could be at any moment that Christ could come back. And we need to live in that. We need to make sure we are doing what Jesus told us to do as we expect him to come back. That is a really quick view of eschatology, a very quick view of the last times, but that's, that's where we're going to leave it this morning. John's talking about something that could happen at any time. He's talking about the time period between the first and second coming of Jesus, and so there's a sense of urgency with what he teaches. Let's keep reading. Again, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming, and so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might be plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Now here we get into a piece of the text that could be a little tricky. So we are going to pause and look a little bit closer at it. John dives into a discussion talking about Antichrist and many Antichrists are the two terms he uses and how they are coming and, in fact, have already come. Now, the language of Antichrist often comes with a lot of baggage. If you've read the Left Behind series, maybe that's dating me a little bit. Uh, there's a lot of baggage that comes with that word. So we're going to try and break it down and look at what we can learn this morning from this text. So first, the actual expression of Antichrist, this word, specific word, is only found in John's writing. And literally, the word means anyone who is anti-Christ, or against Christ, or an enemy of Christ. Now, commentator Colin Krauss notes that the Jesus taught that false Christs would appear in the last days. He's talking about that in Matthew chapter 24 and Mark chapter 13. He continues and he says that in practice, there is little difference between a false Christ and an antichrist, for both are opposed to the true Christ. It is very likely then that when the author says his readers have heard that the antichrist is coming, he is referring to the message that they heard from the beginning when they were first instructed in the faith, which included teaching about the coming of the antichrist and many antichrists. Another commentator, David Aiken, would add that Jesus warned of all this in Matthew 24, and so as the gospel spreads, the true gospel, as the teaching of Jesus spreads, so too will false teachings. As Christ's missionaries go out to all nations, so will Satan's missionaries called antichrists. He says we are engaged in a global conflict for the souls of men. Interestingly, though, he says, there could be no antichrists if there was not a true Christ. If there was no true Christ, there would be nothing to oppose. So even their coming, even the coming of the Antichrist, is a witness concerning Jesus' coming. I think that little bit there should maybe give us some hope as well. So John is telling us that we are living in a time where there are many Antichrists in the world, and their work will continue until the Antichrist, the person who is not necessarily referred to in this passage... Their work will continue until the Antichrist comes at the end of the last hour. So what do we learn about these Antichrists? There are several things that John says about them in this passage that we can pull out uh, just by having a little read and, and they can help us describe and, and measure who they are and how they are different from the us 
that Paul talks about. So, first of all, John says that they have come and they are coming in verse 18. I suggest by speaking in two tenses here that they have come and they are coming. John is telling us something, uh, that this is something that the church will contend with throughout the last hour. This is not just something that in John's day, they've got a few people running around teaching something wrong, but uh, eventually they'll die out and we don't have to worry about that anymore. That is not the case. And as we look at the world around us, we can also suggest that there are many people teaching a gospel that is not the same as what Jesus taught. And so we have these antichrists, these enemies of Christ in our midst in the world today. Second thing we can learn about these is they are many. Again, from verse 18. There's not just one or two, but there's lots. The third thing we can learn that John says is that, and this is a little bit shocking, I think, something that maybe we don't expect. In verse 19, John says that they went out from us. Again, this, this could be a bit of a, a, bit of a shocker. Now, the, the people of the church may be able to say, yeah, yeah, we saw them leave. We know who you're talking about, John, and we can tell that, that, that they were with us and now they're not, that something happened there. I think often, perhaps in our day, when we think of the coming of Antichrist, or when we think of enemies of Christ, perhaps we assume that opposition will come from outside the church and attack the church. However, what we see here is that John is telling us, telling his church, that the opposition has come from within. These little pockets of false belief, of deceit, as we'll see a little bit later, have come from those who claimed to be followers of Jesus. But they've grown away, they've gone away. Dan Aiken again says, the greatest dangers to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ are always from within and not from without. Satan is a master deceiver and strategist who knows that the deployment of a spiritual Trojan horse can do serious, if not irreparable damage to the body of Christ. We've seen from the very beginning, right from Genesis 3, that what happened with Adam and Eve in the fall of the world? They had answers of who is God, what has he done, who are we, what do we do? And Satan twisted the answers to all those questions just a little bit. God said, who, is, who am I? Who is God? God is Father, perfect, loving. Satan said, really? Does God really love you? What has God done? Everything created everything for humanity, Genesis 1 and 2. What does Satan say? Really? Do you have everything? God seems to be keeping something from you. Subtle shifts. Who are we? Genesis 1 and 2. We are created to be children of God, in community with God, in perfect relationship with God. What does Satan tell us? Really? You can't eat. God doesn't want you to eat that fruit. God doesn't want you to have knowledge like him because he doesn't want you to be like him. He knows that. God's holding back on you. He knows that your eyes will be opened and you will be gods like him. And what have we done? God says, you've done nothing. It's fine. I created you so that we can be together. The lie is, really, nothing? Look at you. You need to do something. Subtle deceit that gets into our lives, gets into our hearts, and starts to teach a false gospel. The fourth thing that we see about these enemies of Christ, these antichrists, in verse 22, John says that they deny that Jesus is the Christ. This is the most fundamental, the most critical belief for those who follow Christ. The entirety of the Christian faith stands or falls on what we believe about Jesus. And we've, we've said this before, we've said this is the purpose of John's writing. The hub, the very centerpiece of Christianity, is the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, the eternal and divine Son of God. If we get it wrong here, if, if Jesus isn't who he says he is, if we try to put something else on him or don't attribute to him full Son of God-ness, everything else falls apart. The only reason Jesus can be the right sacrifice for us is if he was not human, if he was God 
come in the flesh. The only way. So if we lose the personal work of Jesus, we've lost everything. This is the spirit of the enemies of Christ, that they will attempt to lead people down a road that says, no, Jesus is something else. He's maybe pretty good. He did some good things. He taught some good principles, but he was not God. Fifth, verse 22 as well, John says that, that these, the enemies of Christ, the Antichrist, they deny the Father and the Son. So these were people who had abandoned the teaching that John said the church had from the beginning. And side note, you'll notice that he uses that phrase twice here, from the beginning, because it's important. These were people who had abandoned that teaching and they left the church because ultimately they had left Jesus. They abandoned the teaching of the apostles and they denied the incarnation and deity of Christ, that Jesus was the one sent by the Father. And sixth and finally, verse 26 tells us that they are trying to deceive. Now when, uh, earlier in our Bibles, when speaking to religious leaders of the day, Jesus accused them essentially of being antichrists since they were opposing him. John 8.44 says this. He says, you are of your father, the devil. You are, that's who you are. That is your identity, your lineage. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He is a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. A handful of significant things that we can know and test with from this passage. Let's carry on. Verses 20, 24 through 28. John says, Let what you have heard from the beginning, there it is again, abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as, just as he taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. This whole passage ultimately uh, answers the what do we do question. Now throughout our verses today, John is, seems to be very clearly, more clear than maybe often, talking about an us and a them. There's a clear line that divides followers of Jesus, the church people, the, the true believers, and those who are deceiving, who he uses that, that really harsh term, Antichrist, enemy of Christ. So if the us is those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, and again, the them is those he categorizes as Antichrists. So what does our passage tell us about the us? Well, there's several things, but one of the first comes from verse 20. He says, you have been anointed. Now, in our Baptist tradition, in a modern Baptist tradition, we... We don't often speak much of anointing. Uh, we don't often, and I'm, I'm not totally sure necessarily why, we don't anoint with oil as, as some other traditions do a little more often. Uh, so maybe we don't have a, a good grasp of what that means. So I want to spend a little bit of time here. So first of all, in the Old Testament, there was something significant about anointing. It was a custom for the people of Israel uh, that, that they would have olive oil poured over their heads when they were chosen to fulfill some of the highest positions in the land. And if we look back at our Bibles and look through for when anointings happen, we see uh, the anointing of prophets, especially. We see the anointing of priests. And we see the anointing of God's kings. Now, moving into New Testament, when Jesus came, he talked about an anointing as well, where he was you know, filled by the Spirit, anointed by the Spirit, and he took on actually all three of these roles, prophet, priest, and king, and he did so perfectly. 
Now, Tim Keller in his book, Center Church, says this, and I'll, I'll read it because he puts it better than I think I could. He says, Jesus has all the powers and function of ministry in himself. He has a prophetic ministry, a prophet, because he was speaking the truth and applying it to men and women on behalf of God. So Jesus was the ultimate prophet. For he revealed most clearly, both in his words and his life, God's character, God's saving purposes, and his will for our lives. That's the role of prophet, to reveal God. Jesus also had a priestly ministry. And so, while a prophet is an advocate for God before people, a priest is an advocate for the people before God's presence. If we think back to the Old Testament, the, the, the only way the people could approach God was through the work of the priest. They had to bring their sacrifices to the priest. The priest was the one who was anointed, who was given permission to offer those sacrifices, to, make, uh, to advocate for the people. So Jesus was the ultimate priest. For he stood in our place and sacrificially bore our burdens and sin, and now he brings us into God's presence. By the work of Jesus, we don't need to bring goats and rams and birds to sacrifice to cleanse our sins, to get forgiveness of our sins and come into the presence of God. Jesus has done that. And finally, Jesus had a kingly ministry. He's the ultimate king. He orders life, the life of his people through his revealed law. So Jesus' character came. He showed us who God is. He made a Priestly, he became our priestly advocate, and he became our king. The one that orders our life and shows us law so that we can know God. Continuing verse 20 again, it says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One. Okay, so Jesus took on that anointing, but now every believer has that anointing as well. We too, like Jesus have been anointed by the Holy Spirit, have been given this work of prophet, priest, and king by the Holy Spirit. Again, Keller summarizes these things. He says, All of the facets of the ministry are brought together in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. And here we are told that followers of Christ have been made kings and priests, a royal priesthood, all of us, not just staff pastors, not just missionaries like we heard last, from last week, all of us, we have all been made kings and priests, a royal priesthood, so that we might declare the praises of him who has called you out of darkness, which is the work of a prophet. Keller continues and says, The Spirit equips every believer to be a prophet who brings the truth, a priest who sympathetically serves, and a king who calls others to account to accountable love, even if he or she lacks the specialized gifts for office or full-time ministry. So clearly, Keller is saying from Peter, from the Bible, we don't follow Tim Keller, we follow the Bible. Every follower of Christ, everyone who believes, has that threefold ministry on us, prophet, priest, and king. This spirit-equipped calling, he concludes, this spirit-equipped calling and gifting of every believer to be a prophet, priest, and king has been called the general office. So we are all Anointed, we all have a role to pray, play to speak the truth of God, to show people who God is, to point them to Jesus, and to call to account, especially other believers, if we are living by the, by the king, in the king. Continuing on, things we have learned about us. In verse 20, we said that you have all knowledge, he says, John says, now, to be very clear, we will always keep growing, always keep growing in our knowledge of God. However, by our anointing, our being set apart for ministry, and by our acceptance of the gospel, we have enough knowledge to go get after the mission. We don't need anything else. We need what the apostles taught, that Jesus is Lord. We don't need some other, yeah, Jesus is Lord, and you have to read your Bible every day. Jesus is Lord, and you have to measure up to this standard. No, Jesus is Lord. We have all the knowledge we need to get after the message. The message. The third thing uh, he says about the us is that we know the truth. He says, you know the truth in verse 21. 
the message translation would add that you know the truth and you know it to confirm it. So we get it. Jesus is Lord. The fourth thing we are to do is we are to abide in truth. As we read this text, and as I read it over and over, it's almost aggravating how often John seems to throw the word abide in because it seems to just keep breaking up the flow. But if he says it a lot, it must be important. We are to abide in truth. Again, there are a ton of abides in this passage, so that means we need to pay attention. So what do we do? Well, this whole series as we walk through 1 John is called This is Living. And it's based on verses like verse 25. This is the promise he made to us. Eternal life. Real, abundant life. So what are we supposed to do? We are to cling to and abide in the message that we have heard from the beginning. John lays it out for us in a couple places, and we have preached through it through the last several weeks. The message is that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. The creator of the universe is perfect, is pure, is holy, is set apart, is completely other to us. First part of the message. The second thing, there's maybe more. In verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9, John writes, If we confess our sins, he is faithful. This perfect other is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, how much unrighteousness is he faithful to cleanse us from? All unrighteousness. And again, if we are cleansed from all unrighteousness, how much is left in us? None. You're getting better. We're going to keep it. I need a little more, little more heat coming back. Maybe next week. Be on your toes for that. If we confess, confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To, to bridge that gap of being the other, God is faithful to do that. And the next thing that we, we have talked about, that we have heard from the beginning, that if anyone does sin, let me rephrase, when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, the appropriate cost, the appropriate sacrifice, the worthy price that needs to be paid for our disobedience, for our sins. And not for ours only, but for also for the sins of the whole world. That's the message we've heard from the beginning. That's the only message we need. Yes, of course, there are other things that we will continue to learn and grow in in Christ, but, but that is the critical message. God is God. We are not. We have sinned. Jesus did it all. Through Jesus, we can come back to God. That's the gospel. Many times in the past several weeks and months, we have used sort of this definition for the gospel. Let me present it one more time. We've said that the just and gracious God of the universe looked upon hopelessly sinful people, that's us, and sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. There it is, God in the flesh, not just some other guy, but God. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection so that all who turn, all who turn, not just Christians, not Christians, I guess, not just uh, white evangelicals, not just Israel, this would have been especially important for God's people in the past, all nations, all who turn and trust in him will be reconciled to God forever. This gospel definition speaks to five things. We've heard these many times. We've heard them this morning as well, but we're going to keep saying them so that we can become a more gospel-fluent community. When we are fluent in a language, we can speak it like without even thinking about it. So to be gospel fluent means we know how to speak the gospel into every situation. There was a time many, many, many moons ago, grade nine-ish, <coughs> when I was fluent in German. Uh, we flew to Germany for a three-week exchange trip, and it took about three days of being so engrossed in the culture, even though our little classroom spoke English to each other as much as we could without the teacher slapping our hands, because I think you could do that back then. When we were in Germany, all of a sudden, we started to think in German. And we wake up and we're like, hey, I had this dream about driving on the Autobahn or whatever. But we were speaking German in the dream. That, to me, is fluency. When you think and dream in a language that's not your own, 
or in whatever language. That means you are fluent in that language. So we are going to continually, repeatedly, until you get sick of me hearing it, talk about this gospel and point out these things so that we can be fluent. And as we go into our lives, we can walk down the street and see something happen, or we can get an exam back and uh, see something happen, and, and know we can be fluent in our gospel and say, what does God say about me? He doesn't say that I'm a failure, even though my prof might say that I am. Uh, that's a Sean, perhaps. <clears throat> Who is God? What has he done? Who are we? What do we do? How do we do it? We are going to be able to apply this gospel to everything, fluently, without even thinking. So, yeah, but wait. So-and-so says, I'm not good at this. Uh, I say to myself, I'm a loser because I left my wallet on an airplane this week. But God has better plans, has a better vision of who I am than I do. Thank you, Jesus. So, that was a rabbit trail. I'll bring it back. The gospel, the definition we've used many times. The just and gracious God of the universe looked upon hopelessly sinful people and sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection so that all who turn and trust in him will be reconciled to God forever. The five things, again, this speaks to that we're all, I believe, in our passage, speaks to the character of God. God is good. God is holy other. Gracious and just, our definition says. It speaks to the sinfulness of man. It speaks that our hearts run away from God, that we have separated ourselves from God because we have chosen to disobey, all of us. This definition speaks to the sufficiency of Christ. We talked about it, that only Jesus' work is good enough. That's it. Nothing we can do, nothing we can earn. It's all about Jesus. Fourth thing this speaks of is the necessity of faith. All who turn and believe in him, that's what it takes. You need to believe that God is good. You need to believe that he did what he said he did. And the last thing this talks about is the urgency of eternity. Again, we are in the last hour, and God's message needs to be taken to the ends of the earth like Jesus told us to 2,000 years ago. Another author I was reading this week said this, the radical claim of the New Testament and of Jesus himself is that Christians are a new people a new humanity created in and through the work of Jesus. Our sin has been forgiven because of Jesus. God treats us as beloved children because of Jesus. Good work. The Spirit of God comes to take up residence in our hearts, and we have a secure future. We are not who we used to be. Thank you, Jesus, that we are not who we used to be. But rather, we are in Christ. We're God's children. All that belongs to Jesus is ours, and our future life is in God's kingdom with God forever. The gospel, this good news that we have just been talking about, is the dynamic power of the Christian life, leading to delight in God and a heart-level obedience to his ways. Consider the following contrast between religion, which would be Jesus plus anything, or something completely other than Jesus, and the gospel. Again, this is from Tim Keller. So in religion, we obey in order to be accepted by God, fearing what might happen if we are disobedient. We can look at any group that does not preach Christ alone, whether that's another religion, again, altogether, or what we would maybe call a cult or a sect, like uh, the Mormons or Jehovah's Witness, or whatever else. In those systems, we obey in order to be accepted by God, fearing what he might do if we're disobedient. I, was, I had a handful of uh, Mormon friends growing up. Uh, they're excellent volleyball players, often. That's a really broad brush. Uh, the ones I knew were excellent volleyball players. And they were some of the kindest, most generous people we ever knew. The kids, their parents, fantastic people. And I wouldn't suggest that they were just doing that because they weren't kind people. But the belief system that they follow says, you have to do these things so that your good hopefully outweighs your bad. And when you get to the end, hopefully you've done enough good. The gospel motivates us to be obedient 
to Christian living by telling us that because of Jesus, we are already accepted. The judgment against our sin has already fallen on Jesus, and that there is no guilt or condemnation left for us. That's completely different. Completely different. Keller, again, contrasting. In religion, he says, I obey in order to get things from God, often making promises about what I will do or how I will change. You see this again, lots of things. If I, hey God, even in the church, right? Hey God, if I pray every day this week and I read my Bible every day this week, maybe you'll answer this prayer, right? We see it in, in other religions where, uh, where people dance in a certain way or whatever else in, in order to try and get the attention of the gods and, and please the gods enough to, whatever it might be, send rain or bring healing or all those sorts of things. In religion, one obeys in order to get. But the gospel tells me that God has done everything. The gospel tells me what God has done for me and his grace teaches me to obey out of joyful gratitude for all that he has already given me. And so I obey to enjoy God. Again, completely different. I don't do the checklist so that God loves me. God loves me and has created something new in me. And when we grasp that who am I in light of what God has done, okay, God, what do you want me to do? If you've already done all that, if Jesus has already gone to the cross, what does it matter? Right? Like what, what other things can be done so that I can get anything? If that's what God's willing to do to reach and get a hold of me, okay, God, I'm in. Whatever you want. So again, religion, we obey in order to get. The gospel tells us God's already done it. So we obey to enjoy what God has already done for us. And finally, on this list anyways, in religion, my identity and self-worth are based on what I can accomplish, on how hard I work, or on how moral I am. Therefore, I look down on others who aren't as moral or obedient as me. However, in the gospel, my identity and self-worth are based on God's love for me in Jesus. Even while I was his enemy, unable to accomplish or earn his love by my actions. My identity and self-worth are based on God's love for me in Jesus. Therefore, I can't look down on someone who's different than me because I am no better than they are, and Keller concludes, probably worse. The claims of Jesus, the message of the gospel, are radically different than anything else in the world. Everything needed to make us right with God once again is done. So how do we live in that? Well, first, no matter where you look, one of the fundamental needs of a human being is to be known and to be accepted. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter where you look. It's just something that people tell us, sociologists tell us, people who study people tell us. We all need to be known and accepted. In the gospel, God has done that. God has made a way for us to be known and to be accepted. The creator of the universe knows you. And not just that, but the creator of the universe wants to know you and has known you since the beginning of time and loves you. And in Jesus, he accepts you. And so if we can grasp that, if we can get that, the creator of the universe loves and accepts me, what other opinion matters? Who cares? I know that that's really hard. I, one of my biggest struggles is seeking the approval from other people, especially, uh, I've said it before, especially the approval of my parents and my dad. But if I grasp just a little bit that my true father, my heavenly father, loves me and accepts, accepts me in spite of the mess of myself that I have made. I love my parents, but who cares what they think, right? That's, that's what I need to, 
live in. The more that we grasp this, I think the more it changes our lives. You should always honor and respect your parents. That's also biblical too. Let me just throw that out there. But the primary identity should come from who you are in Christ. The more we grasp this, I think the more it changes our lives. You're not accepted by God by how much you make or because of how much you make, how valuable you are to society, the the things you do for the world, the number of friends you have, the number of social media friends you have, uh, the letters after your name. God doesn't love me more if I have, you know, BA, MD, PhD, whatever else. Good thing. Uh, God doesn't love you. You are not more loved or more accepted by the marks you get in school, whatever else. You are loved and accepted by God because he created you, he knit you together in your mother's womb, and because he loves you. Second, church, we are God's holy people, a royal priesthood. We've been given that position because of absolutely nothing but the grace of God. So what are we supposed to do? There's that little word that John seems to like a lot. We abide in that. We take that position. We let that sink in, as the message translates. And we sort of allow ourselves, this is my word, to marinate in that truth. Sorry, I used that word so close to lunch. We abide in that truth that that God has accepted us because of his grace and only his grace. And we live in that. And then we collect ourselves in that boldness and we take up the banner of our king, King Jesus. Church, there is nothing that we can do to make God love us more. And there is nothing that we can do to earn God's blessing. Now, I feel like sometimes, perhaps around here over the past several years, we have longed to see God bless the ministry or grow the ministry here at Renfrew. And perhaps, in a sense, follow with me here, we have denied the gospel, not in word, but in action, and thought, hey, listen, if we just did this thing, then God will bless and grow this ministry. It's subtle, right? If we just had this, then the pews would be full. What we're actually doing is saying, well, God is good. Jesus said, I will build my church. We're saying, okay, just get right, Jesus, get that. But if we put this in place, then you'll build your church. That is, if to use John's language, that's what the enemies of Christ did. Jesus plus something. And I don't think we have ever said it out loud, uh, but I, I confess myself that functionally, we have, I have said this. If we just had the program running this way, if we just partnered with such and such a ministry, you know, if we just had those people come back, right? Like, we used to be so big, and these people left. And if we just had them come back, then if so-and-so would lead this ministry, if we had this system or policy or procedure or whatever else in place, then God all of a sudden would just pour out his blessing. And because we don't have these things in place, God is holding back on us. If, 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 if. Functionally, we're denying the gospel, and that is dangerous. Church, God loves us because he loves us, and Jesus promised that he will build his church. Our job is to make sure we are striving to build his church. We'll come back to that another day, too. So this morning, I, maybe we need to repent of the times where we have knowingly or unknowingly functioned outside of our belief in the gospel, where we've said, yeah, Jesus, you'll build your church, but let me do this first. And then once, you know, once I've done my part, then, okay, we're good. We need to repent of that. Today, as we close, I'll invite the team to start coming up. Um, the team's going to play a song. Uh, it's called, Lord, I Need You. And I would encourage us to consider if we functionally, or maybe in our lives, have not accepted the gospel, but rather have been striving to earn God's favor. Perhaps we need to ask God to show us areas in our lives where that's true. Because sometimes it's, it's hard to say. It's hard to, like, listen, preacher, I think I'm doing pretty good. 
I've said that in my head to many speakers. So as they play, let's, let's take some time and just ask God to show us where we are not living in our identity in Christ, where we've said, well, Jesus has done all the work, my, my acceptance, my value comes from him. But instead we thought, well, yeah, God's good, Jesus loves me, read your Bible, pray every day. But I need to have this stuff sorted out and then God will really love me, right? Like that's, that's not a, an uncommon way of thinking. If this is the first time that you're hearing that all love and acceptance from God is available to you, not because of anything you've done or will do or can do, can do, but only because of what Jesus has done, I'd love to chat and pray with you. I invite you to join me up front. I know it's awkward. We'll get everyone to stand for the song. You don't have to stand quite yet so that it's a little bit less awkward to move around, but I'd love to just meet and pray with you. Also, if God is stirring in your heart some ways in which you have put your faith into Jesus plus something, my efforts, my reading the Bible, my praying, whatever, I would encourage you as well to repent of that. Ask Jesus to forgive you and soak and marinate in the reality that Jesus loves you because he loves you. Not because of your works, not because of your efforts, and not because you deserve it. Let's pray. God, thank you for this passage today. Father, forgive me when I have not accepted your gospel as gospel. When I have functionally or even speaking out loud suggested that I need to do something to be accepted by you. Or as a church, we need to build something to gain your acceptance. Oh, God, forgive me. Thank you for reminding us today that what Jesus did on the cross is enough to make amends for my disobedience, for my sin against you. Again, Father God, forgive me when I functionally acted as though the gospel is not enough, as though Jesus' work on the cross was not enough for you to love me. Thank you, God, for your rich, undeserved grace. Thank you that you want to know me, that you forgive me, and that you love me. Let me and us abide, and let me and us marinate in that this week. Amen. This has been a presentation of Renfrew Baptist Church, a community of faith that exists to create obedient followers of Jesus Christ who love God and love people.